Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Aren't you glad this morning that we get to continue our praise of the great name of Jesus? And let's turn in our Bibles today to Matthew chapter 3. And as you're turning over there to Matthew chapter 3, I want you to just use your imagination as you find your fingers flipping through those pages. Use your imagination and just imagine that you are preparing a meal for someone who is royal. Not just any royalty. Imagine that you are preparing a meal for the king. You've gone to great lengths to make this preparation. You've gone out and you've polished your nice silverware. You're finally taking down that nice fine china and you've got everything set just right. It's a big event, so you may have had to change venues. You may have rented a place, but either way, you're in charge of feeding the king. So just imagine the, the kitchen staff, they're in the, they're in the kitchen all hustling and bustling, preparing for the meal to come, and then all of a sudden, unannounced, the king comes, taps you on the shoulder, he's in the kitchen, and he looks at you and he says, how can I serve you? Where can I get myself to work? Could you just imagine, here you are preparing for the king, and the king himself comes, taps you on the shoulder with an apron on and says, put me to work. How do you think you'd be? Dazed? Shocked? Maybe a little confused, wondering, hey, this is some imposter here. This is not the king. Well, that's sort of the attitude, this sort of shock and all that I want us to talk about today with John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. So we have this instance in our text today where here John has been proclaiming about Jesus is coming, this Messiah is coming, but then unexpectedly the Messiah comes to John be baptized by him. Let's read the Bible today in Matthew chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 11 and we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter. Let's read it together. I baptize you with water for repentance, John says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy even to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word meets us today with a word from God. And we are desperate to hear this word that you have to us today. Feed us from your word and the power of your spirit, exalting our Christ so that you may receive all glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now what do we know about John the Baptist? We've been introduced to him since the beginning of chapter 3. And we know that John the Baptist, he's a very popular preacher. We know that John is a popular preacher, but he's one who knows that his ministry is for a purpose. The ministry and the purpose of John is to yield his way to someone who's coming who is greater than him. Think about it. John baptizes with water. 
The one who's coming is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John calls for repentance. This one who is coming is going to seal people with the Holy Spirit. John is the messenger. Jesus is the message himself. And so John's whole purpose is to prepare the way, as Isaiah says. His whole purpose is to come, and his ministry then, even though he's popular, he's written about in other sources that are not biblical, like Josephus, the Jewish historian. He writes a little bit about who John the Baptist is. John's very popular. Herod knows him. The whole city knows who he is. But he knows that his purpose is to give way. His purpose is to yield to one who is greater than him. As we encounter this Christ in the text today. I love the way that Matthew, one who walked with Jesus, is teaching us Christ. Think about what we've seen automatically just from chapter 1 all the way to where we are now. We see this amazing and this beautiful tapestry of providence in the birth narrative. Think about it. We see this long-expected child. What's he do? He comes born of a virgin, and then when he comes, he receives the adoration and the praise of all the nations. And then we see this child fleeing for his life because of this price that's been put on his head, the king of the universe fleeing from another king because this other king wants to snuff out his life. And then what do we see in the end of chapter 2? We see him settling in a little place of insignificance, a quaint little place of insignificance called Nazareth. And now what do we see? Now we see him showing up to an evangelist revival meeting to be baptized with a guy who eats locust and wild honey. Isn't it interesting? But this is the first time that we get to see Jesus publicly. This event, this baptism event is one that I have prayed over so much for our sake this week because I've never preached through a gospel before. One of the reasons is just it's intimidating. It's really intimidating to preach. Mr. Phil Hudson and I were talking this morning. It's very intimidating to preach the gospel because, hey, there's a weight that is come. It's my job to make sure that as I'm standing here behind this sacred desk, I better get it right. Eternity, not so much as dependent, so say, but I know that I'll be held to a stricter judgment based upon what I say. And so this event that we're going to look at today, I've spent so much time praying because it's a significant event. It's not only significant in the life of Jesus, it's significant for you, it's significant for me. And so this is the first time in this baptism, and you have to have this in mind, this is the first time that we see Jesus publicly. We've only seen him as a baby. We've only seen him settling in a place called Nazareth. We don't hear anything from him. And the first time that we see him beginning his ministry it's in this moment where he comes to do something strange, something that perhaps for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you've had questions about. Those of you who've gone into the waters of baptism, maybe you've wondered what on earth is Jesus doing, but it's in this moment of him being baptized that Jesus is giving a glimpse of his ministry. It's in this moment that Jesus is revealing the way in which he will accomplish this rescue mission of redemption and reconciliation. And the way that he does it, it's through his self-identification with the very ones that he came to save. You see, the early church looked at this event. They were gathering together and they heard this story of Jesus. They read the gospel of Matthew. They read the gospel of Mark and Luke and John. They read all these gospels that tell this story of this Jesus being baptized. No wonder when they are reflecting on this life and this ministry of Jesus, they came up with a little phrase to tell the reason that he came. 
The reason that they say that Jesus came, and this is so beautiful, why did Jesus come? For our sake and for our salvation. This event here where Jesus is going to go into the waters of baptism, we're going to tell this beautiful story of Jesus' coming. And why did Jesus come? Well, listen, if you were to answer that question, if I were to come up to you or someone on the street say, why did Jesus come? Your answer is, for our sake and for our salvation. Don't we have that in in John 3.16? You know that, don't you? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will never perish but have everlasting life. You know that. But think about the significance of what we see here. This Jesus who is coming for our sake and for our salvation. And so as we read this text together, there is one particular phrase that catches our attention as we read about this significant event. And let me just say again, this event is not just significant for Jesus. If this Jesus has come for you, then what's going on in his life? We're just not peering through a glass and looking at some event. No, no, no. It's not just significant for what happened then. It's significant for our faith now, right here today, what happened back then. But there's one particular phrase that catches our attention. Look at verse 15. What do we have with John in Matthew 3? Verse 15, John is resisting Jesus. But what does Jesus say that he's doing? Look at what he says, verse 15. Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So today I've entitled this message, Filling Up What is Lacking. And today from this text, I want us to learn four ways that Jesus fills up what is lacking. Four ways that Jesus fulfills all righteousness righteousness as you're thinking about that as you see that title there on the back of the screen there as we're thinking about filling up what is lacking and filling up righteousness before we begin such a glorious look at the text we need to ask ourselves a question and I'm not going to take this for granted as we're standing up here doing what we're doing I want you to know so that we're all on the same page together I want us to all be together what in the world do we mean when we say that Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness Briefly, let me just say a few things about what we know already from the Bible. The Bible tells this true story of the whole world. That's why we have Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 is so significant. There may be some of you who believe that we can just dismiss the Old Testament entirely, and especially that antiquated story of Genesis. But Genesis is entirely important for our worldview because you know what Genesis says? It says, in the beginning, God created everything. You know what that means? It means that this story then is not just my story. It's not just your story. It's not just for the story of those who believe. This story is the true story of the whole world. This is everyone's story. And so in the very beginning, we have this picture of this God who created you, who created me for fellowship with himself so that we would enjoy his company forever. The fellowship then was contingent upon our walking with him. That's what we call righteousness. Walking with God in purity and holiness is called righteousness. And so the Bible tells this story that we were created for fellowship, but we fell out of that fellowship with him because we disobeyed God and we sinned. And so even when we sin today, our sinning today serves as a testimony of the first time that sin entered into the world. There is now a void that you and I have in our hearts as we try to please God, but we can't. We try to live a righteous life, but we cannot. And so what this does in our hearts is it gives us this longing that says that we need a Savior. And the good news is that the Bible says 
It doesn't just leave us and say, you need a Savior. The Bible says that Jesus has come to be that Savior. Jesus has come where righteousness was lacking for us. Jesus has come to fill up our righteousness. Jesus has come to be the righteousness of God for us. And how does he do that? Well, the first thing that he does, listen carefully, and this is so significant. The first picture that Jesus does to show us that he's going to fulfill all righteousness is he goes into the waters of baptism. Four things this morning from this text. Number one, how does Jesus fulfill all righteousness? Jesus fulfills all righteousness by his coming to us. Now, I know that sounds uh, so trivial. I know it's pretty simple, but that's all right. I'm a simple guy. It's real simple. How does he fulfill all righteousness? Don't miss this fact. He fulfills all righteousness by coming to us. Look at the text. Right after we see John exalting the one who's coming, this is what he says here in verse 11. He, he tells that he's going to baptize with water. But there's one who's coming. You see, he's always anticipating this one who's coming. And right after we see John exalting the one coming, what happens in verse 13? Right after he says in verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee. But I want you to notice in verse 13, notice the simple way that the Bible reads. Look at what it says. It says simply, Jesus comes to John. Do you see that? John's standing in a place. Here this great Lord is, as Matthew chapter 1 has told us, has moved the whole history of the world to prepare him for this place. Luke is even more specific when we get into the birth narrative. It says it came time for all the world to be taxed by Caesar Augustus. Do you remember that? You read that story in the morning to your kids. What does that tell us? It tells us that God has been arranging the entire world's circumstances also that Jesus would come. Also that he could send a Savior to save who? You. To save me. To save all of those who by faith trust in him. Remember John's purpose though. And so what do we have? We have Jesus coming to John. So remember John's purpose. Who is John? He's a man who was sent from God. And his purpose was to bear witness of the one who was coming. So what do we have in the text? Right away we see Jesus coming from Galilee to the Jordan to John. Now remember where John is. What's it say in chapter 3? It says in chapter 3 and verse 1, where is he? He is in the wilderness of Judea. So what does that tell us? It tells us that John is in a desolate place for a purpose. His message in every way is to have the people of God hope for a better day that it's coming. His whole purpose, he's standing in a desolate place. It's not just if, well, I think I'll go over here because there's water. He's standing on the banks of the Jordan River in the middle of the desert for a purpose. And his purpose is to declare that there is a brighter day coming. There is a better land than even this land that's coming. He's saying that there is a new exodus that will lead the people of God into the promised land. You have to understand that. The land that was promised is not necessarily the physical place in Israel. That's not the promised land. If you go today and you go visit Israel, which I have done, guess what? 
you don't go visit the promised land. The promised land is a land that is coming. The promised land is a land that Jesus is going to bring and will establish His kingdom on this earth. And the Bible says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord just as the waters cover the sea. And so what's John doing? You imagine how radical that is? He's on the other side of the Jordan. He's in the promised land, but he's declaring that there's a king who's going to come. And when he comes... He's going to lead us to a better place than we have right now. He's going to lead us to a promised land. And so we need to understand that this brighter day, this brighter land that's coming, tells also this story. This story says that we're not in the promised land. There is a separation between God and us. There is this divide that is between God and us as far away as the east is to the west. And without Him and without His presence, there is nothing but desolation. There is nothing but wilderness. You see, you and I are left hopeless without some kind of intervention. You and I are left hopeless without His coming to us. And here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us in plain black and white print that Jesus has come to us. But where did He come to us? He came to us right where we are. He didn't come and wait for everybody to just be perfect and then, oh, well, they're good enough for me to go down there and save, so I think I'll go down there. No, no, no. Where's John? Where's he at? It's so important. 3-1. He's in the wilderness of Judea. He's in the desolate place. Now, there's water there, thankfully. There's a lot of water, but Jesus comes in the midst of our brokenness. He comes in the midst of right where we are, all so that He could bring us to the heights of His perfection. Now, it's a small point, but it's the most significant point for us going forward. You have to get this. God has taken the initiative to come to where you are. You may be in this morning in depression. You may be this morning having suicidal thoughts. You may be this morning in the deep darkness of sin. But listen to me carefully. Jesus loves you right where you are. He loves you so much that He is not going to leave you that way. He is coming to you right where you are to bring you up, if you place your faith in Him, right to the heights of His very perfection. And that's what He's been doing all along. You see, any barriers that existed between us and Him are torn down by His simple coming to us. But look at the strange way that He came to us. Look at this next phrase at the end of verse 13. He came to John, but what did He come to do? He came to John to be baptized by Him. Number two this morning, Jesus fulfills all righteousness Not only by coming to us, but by identifying Himself with us. And let me just stop right there and say this. Jesus' self-identification with us is the stumbling block of the gospel. Even to this day, who Jesus is is the question of the ages. We have to answer the question When you place faith in Jesus, you better make sure that you are placing faith in the Jesus, this Jesus, who without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Every cult, every false religion, every heresy, all falls at this same point to answer the question, who is 
Jesus. You see, some prefer the Jesus who is like God, but he's not really God. He's sort of this ultra-righteous man that goes and lives on some mountain. They like that Jesus who is sort of like God, but he's not really God. Or some people like the Jesus who is all the way God, but he's really not totally man. Some people like the Jesus who's a good teacher. They like the good example Jesus. But this Jesus who comes, this Jesus who saves, who is he? He is the eternal Word of God. He is God's eternal Son made flesh so that He could come to us and save us. That's who saves us. There's no other Jesus who can save. This Jesus, the Jesus of the text, is the one that is fulfilling all righteousness. Listen carefully. No other Jesus can save other than the eternal Son of God, who for our sake and for our salvation became flesh, was born of a virgin's womb so that he could take us to the heights of his very perfection. Remember what Peter said at the Jerusalem council? Remember what he said? Listen to what he said. After he was arrested and speaking before the council in Jerusalem, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out, the apostle Peter stands up and this is what he says in Acts. This Jesus... Not a Jesus that you want. Not a Jesus that I may want. This Jesus. The Jesus. This Jesus, it says, is the stone that has been rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then listen to this next phrase. This is important. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's important. This Jesus. This is why I say that, yes, I'm grateful that I'm a Southern Baptist. We've been reading together the Baptist faith and message. We just got today to the uh, section on cooperation, which, by the way, is one of our distinctiveness as Baptists. I'm a Southern Baptist because I stand in this long line of churches who want to cooperate together for the sake of the Great Commission. But you know what I am before I'm a Southern Baptist? I'm an Orthodox Christian. You say, what does that mean? It means that I believe in the teaching of the saints. I believe that because of Jesus' coming, He has passed down that teaching to His disciples. And those disciples and those apostles have passed down that teaching to us. And we have that teaching right here. We have the, the rule of faith. We have that teaching, that message of Jesus, who Jesus is. This is why we have the Old Testament first. Because the Old Testament was the New Testament of the New Testament church. you understand that? Because now that Jesus has come, He changes the way that we think about Scripture. He changes the way we think about God. He opens our eyes and gives us the right way to read the Bible. And so it is this Jesus that we have to believe in. This Jesus. See, Jesus, think about what He did. He came to save not by standing over us, but He came to save by standing beside us. Do you see that? Now think about it in this text here. Jesus, rightly so, he could have been standing in the water right along with John. Matter of fact, he could have been standing even beyond John. And he could have been standing in that water calling people to repent. But that's not what he did, did he? If there was one person qualified to call others to repent, it was Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is fully God. Jesus is also fully man. Do you see that? This is who Jesus is. He came to save us not by standing over us, 
But he came to save us by standing right beside us. And so what does he do? Instead of calling people to repent, what does he do? He stands right in line with the rest of them. Right in line with the very ones that he's coming to save. He stands right in line, numbering himself, in the language of Isaiah 53, numbering himself with the transgressors, even though he didn't have any transgression of his very own. And, beloved, why did he do that? Only one reason. For your sake and for your salvation. You see, in Jesus doing this, he is offering us himself for our salvation. Number three this morning, Jesus fulfills all righteousness by being our salvation. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the way that I've worded that because it's important. Pay close attention to the way the point is written down and when you write it down on your page, Make sure that you get that He fulfills all righteousness by being our salvation. Listen carefully. Yes, He saves us. But it's how He saves us that means that we're saved. He saves us. But it's how that He saves us that means that we're saved. Listen carefully. He doesn't just dangle salvation over it and say grab it. Okay? This is important. Salvation is not something that is external to who he is in himself this is why we have to know who jesus is this is why when we place faith in the son we need the jesus otherwise you're not saved if you believe that jesus is created instead of the creator you're not a christian if you believe that jesus is not the eternal son of god begotten of the father you're not a christian you don't know jesus this is important jesus has come to save us. And how has He saved us? He has saved us by giving us Himself. Listen carefully. He is our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. Not that there's salvation that's sort of separated from Him. Not that there's some salvation that's sort of external to Him. Listen carefully. He Himself is our salvation. And just like John, there may be some of you who don't want this. There may be some of you that you've been resisting Him all your life. There may be some here today that, that you're like John. You're standing and you see this Jesus coming to you. Not a Jesus, but this Jesus coming to you. And you say, no, no, I need to be baptized by you. But listen carefully. Don't resist Jesus because trust what Jesus says. We need this. And the reason that we need this is so that all righteousness may be fulfilled. Now remember what we said earlier about fulfilling all righteousness just so that I can make sure that you get it this morning. All of us today have two major things in common. Number one, everyone here was created to have an eternal relationship with God. Everyone here has been created in the image of God and is capable of having a relationship with Him. That's everyone. But we also have something else in common. Every one of us today is a sinner. Every one of us today is a sinner in need of saving. Do you see how those things go together? We've been created to adore God. We've been created to worship God. We've been created to enjoy fellowship with Him. But we've fallen short of that righteousness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says. So all of us have the capacity for having a relationship with Him, but that capacity in us has been damaged. And so what do we need? 
We need the image of God restored to us. Righteousness is lacking, and what is lacking needs not to be lacking. And so what happens? Righteousness needs to be fulfilled. And so what happens? Jesus comes to fulfill all righteousness. But this is where it gets good. This is where it gets strange in our minds, but this is where we have to dig a little deeper into the text to see what it is. Look at the way that Jesus says that he fulfills all righteousness. Look at the text. Look at verse 15 in Matthew chapter 3. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What on earth is the it? Baptism. And so what on earth is baptism? Now, I want us to do something today. I would have you turn here, but we don't have time to turn here, so I've got it written down for us. Listen to 1 Corinthians, and you write these down so you can look at them later, because the whole chapter is worth listening to. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If we're going to find out what baptism is, let's listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, remember where John is. Where's John? Standing on the banks of a certain river. What river is that that he's standing at? The Jordan River. Now, that's important. It's not just choosing a place where there's water. He could have gone to the Dead Sea or the Sea of Galilee. To, no, no, he's at the Jordan River. Listen carefully. So what is baptism? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. Listen, this is Paul. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, what's he talking about? He's talking about that time where Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. He's talking about the time that they wandered in the wilderness. Listen to what he says. He says, Our fathers were all under the cloud, being led around by the pillar of fire and the cloud, and all passed through the sea. What sea? The Red Sea. That's right. Now listen to this next phrase. And this is where it makes us scratch our heads. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, and in the sea. What? Let's read that again. All were baptized into Moses? What on earth does Moses have to do with baptism? Look at what he's saying here. Moses parting the Red Sea is paired with baptism. You see, God is telling a story. He's acting out his story using real people in real places in real time. What's his story? His story is a story of restored glory. His story is a story of restoration. His story is a story of salvation in Christ who came. How did He come? For you, for our sake, and for our salvation. That's what He did. And so look at this. The Exodus then, Paul's looking back. He's reading the Exodus, this story of God, and he's saying the Exodus was a major salvation event in the Old Testament. Now, I said a major salvation event in the Old Testament. It's a major, but there's another one. Can you think about what the other salvation event in the Old Testament may have been? Well, let's find out again. And again, I've written it down for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Listen to what it says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Amen. Being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is that passage, right, that no one knows what's going on. In which he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when, listen carefully, when God's patience waited in the days 
of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Are you ready for this? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now listen to what he says. Not a removal of dirt from the body. So he's saying, not the water. We're not talking about that water. That's not what saves you. He says, not a removal of, of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God, that's important, through good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone to the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers being subjected to him. Noah and baptism? Do you see the way Jesus has changed the entire way that we read the Bible? You see, this makes the whole event of what Jesus is doing entirely significant because what do we do? Jesus is saying, hey, I am fulfilling the Old Testament right here. I am God, and I am representing the people of God. The flood is a picture of baptism. The Exodus event where they crossed through the Red Sea, that's just a picture of baptism. Baptism then, listen carefully, is a significant picture of the saving acts of God. And so what happens here? Jesus is getting into the water. And he's not only identifying himself with people who need saving, listen, but he is identifying himself with all the saving acts of God. And so his water baptism is anticipating a way in which he'll save. And so how is it that Jesus saves us? What does Jesus do? Does he save us through baptism? No. How does Jesus save us? He saves us through a cross. But listen to the way that Jesus refers to the cross. Listen to Mark chapter 10. This is that passage where, you know, James and John, the sons of thunder, are coming and saying, make me greatest in the kingdom and all this stuff, and we want to sit at your right hand and left hand. And then listen to what Jesus says. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now listen to this next phrase. Or be baptized with the baptism which I am to be baptized. Wait a minute, Jesus is going to go to the cross, isn't he? He's not going down to the water. Listen, yes, that's exactly right. Jesus is going to the cross, but that cross then is a picture of the wrath of God being satisfied. That baptism is a picture of what will happen on the cross when the eternal Son of God who was sinless, takes on the sin of mankind so that he can take that sin, put it in a grave of God's forgetfulness and never bring it up again. Baptism then is a picture of the salvation acts of God. So what does he do? He takes John's baptism to identify with us. We then take his baptism to identify with him. Do you see that? He takes John's baptism to identify with us. We take His baptism by His death and His cross to identify with Him. Baptism is a picture of the saving acts of God. Think about it. Romans chapter 6. How do you and I now view baptism? This is how we view baptism. Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see how we now view baptism? 
We see baptism as this picture of the saving acts of God. God's been doing it all along. He did it with Noah to save Adam's helpless race. He did it through the wilderness and Exodus to save Adam's helpless race. He did it on the cross to save Adam's helpless race. You and I now view baptism all because of what Jesus has done. Jesus, listen carefully, is the one person who both represents us and because of who He is, God in the flesh is able to raise us up. Listen, I can't say this enough for you Christians. This is why He, this Jesus, the eternal Son who became incarnate, this is the reason why He came. This is why we need Him for salvation. You and I were left powerless over death. There's nothing that we could do about death. So what did we need? We need someone who was susceptible to death. We needed someone to come who could die, who also had the power to take death and undo death for us. And listen carefully. This Jesus is the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior because what He did was defeat death for all eternity. Those of us who trust in Jesus, this is why when we go to a funeral, we have a song that we sing at that funeral. You know what it is? Victory in Jesus. We look at that and we see someone who's died and they trust Jesus with all their heart. We see and we sing a different song. Oh, it's a funeral song. We're sad. We lament. But we know that that lifeless body and that casket that's before us, that's not the final word for that person. Jesus has the final word because Jesus has tasted death for all men and all who by faith trust in Him will be raised with a resurrection just like His. So why do we sing these songs at funerals? Why? Because He has come to take what is lacking and fill it up. He has come to be our righteousness, which leads us to our next point. Look at the text. And in the text, there are clues to what Jesus' coming has done. Look at verse 16 and 17. I love this. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. The heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. But look at this phrase, number four this morning. Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Listen carefully. By making a way for us to be with God. Look at the phrase. Look at this text. Such a strange phrase. The heavens were opened. What on earth does that mean? I don't think it means simply that the clouds parted. We know how to say that. The heavens opened. We don't use that. We don't look around and when we see the skies clear, ah, oh, the heavens have opened. We don't talk that way. What on earth is going on? What on earth? Such a strange phrase. The heavens have opened. You know what I believe this is telling us? The best way Matthew knows how. This is telling us that the barriers between man and God are going down by the ministry of the Son who has come to reveal heaven to us. Listen carefully. The only way for the barriers that existed to be removed is by Him doing something that had never been done before. And this is what Jesus is doing. What's He doing? Jesus, in His person, is recreating. 
Jesus is making all things new in this very moment. Look at the text. You're going to see familiar language. Everything's telling us what Jesus is doing. And listen carefully. He's doing what he's always been anticipating to do. It's all echoes in the Old Testament now fulfilled in Jesus. What's he doing? Look at this. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, coming to rest on Jesus. Does this sound like anything that we've ever heard before? Think about in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. What do we have? We have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. And then in Genesis chapter 8, where where Noah is, we see Noah, what's he do? After the waters have, have gone up and the rains have stopped, we see Noah releasing a dove over the waters of new creation. But what happens to that dove? That dove does not come back because he finally finds a place to rest. Listen, Jesus is the way that God is making all things new. This is why you have to believe in Him. This is why Oxford Baptist Church is all about Jesus. But it's not just any Jesus. It is the eternal Son who became incarnate for our sake and our salvation. This is who He is. This is why we worship Him. This is why we adore Him. And it's no wonder that the heavens open with a voice and says what it says. Because only Jesus can do what He does. And look at what He does here. This is so important. Why does Jesus receive the Spirit? He receives the Spirit so that He can give the Spirit. It's not as if He didn't have fellowship with the Spirit. He was total God. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is total God. He receives the Spirit, listen carefully, so that He can be the one to give the Spirit. How did He receive the Spirit? In its flesh. Listen carefully. How do you and I receive the Spirit? In our flesh. Why is he doing what he's doing? Is it out of some necessity for his sake? No, it is out of necessity for you and me. You see, he gives the Spirit. And he gives the Spirit today to those whom he is pleased with. And so if you want the Spirit today, how is it that we please God? Here's the answer. Are you ready? You have to be righteous. And how do we become righteous? There's only one way. And it's not by you doing something. It's not by you having this list of chores that you complete that says, yep, I finally made it to level 31. I'm righteous. No, no. How is it that we become righteous? Faith in this one. Not faith in anyone. The Jehovah's Witness Jesus won't get you to heaven. The Mormon Jesus won't get you to heaven. The oneness Pentecostal Jesus won't get you to heaven. The Islam Jesus won't get you to heaven. The Jewish Jesus won't get you to heaven. This Jesus will get you to heaven. You have to have faith in this one. There is salvation in no other name by which men must be saved. And here's the promise. When you believe in Him, all the righteousness that He had accomplished, all His righteousness, the Bible says is given to us as our righteousness. Only Jesus can save. And so the question that you have to ask this morning, do you believe in Him? Do you believe? And not just do you believe. Listen carefully. Here's what you have to believe. You have to believe that there is a God in heaven 
who has sent his son, who without ceasing to be what he was, eternal God, he became what he was not, man, so that he could save you. Is that the Jesus that you love? Is that the Jesus that you adore? Let me tell you, that's the Jesus that came for you. And that's the Jesus that will save. There is salvation in no other name other than this Jesus who came for our salvation and for our sake. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Help us today to have faith in the Son. May those of us who have faith in you, may we look at a text like this and let our heart be so overwhelmed by this great God who loves us and gave himself for us. And Father, there may be some today who when they look back at their life, they realize that they don't have faith in this Jesus. Their Jesus is somebody other than the eternal God. I pray today that you would, by the Holy Spirit, convict them and let them receive salvation today by placing their faith in the Son. Maybe there's some here today, Lord, that they've been resting on their own righteousness to try to save them, and it's not about them. It's about them adoring you and all that you've done. May you save them today. Father, in whatever way that we need, you are there to meet us with our needs, and so I pray that you would have free reign in our hearts to do your mighty, awesome work. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.